Turn tonight, please, 1 Corinthians 7. First Corinthians seven. And we're going to read the first seven verses, and that will be our portion for tonight. <clears throat> now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. And let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, And come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission, and not of commandment. For I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner, and another after that. And let's pray. Father, I pray that you would uh, help us to understand your word. I pray for... Uh, the grace, your grace in delivering the message and your graciousness as we receive it. And I pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at this point in the letter, Paul turns his attention to the questions that the Corinthians have asked him. Uh, I think we could broadly point out that the first four chapters of the book, Paul is dealing with unity in the church. And in chapter 5, 6, and 7, he is dealing with purity in the church. Uh, The subject matter of verses 1 through 7 are, excuse me, I'm having some real issues with my voice tonight. Um, The the subject matter, verses 1 through 7, I think pretty obviously are intimate physical relationships between husbands and wives. And what Paul does in chapter 7, is walk through virtually every possible marital situation and address it. And in addition to that, he dresses, addresses other um, situations that he takes up beginning in verse number 17. Um, and I think in general that what Paul is doing in the chapter is explaining to them the thinking of the way we relate a, our place in the physical world to God's spiritual world. And so this passage this evening is the first part of that. Um, The way that we relate our physical being into the fact that we are spiritual beings and what that means for Christianity. Uh, Before we get into the actual text itself, I just want to point out to you three uh, different observations about the passage. First of all, that Paul is talking about an intimate physical relationship from the perspective of principle 
And what I mean by that is Paul is not trying to address every imaginable scenario in every imaginable marriage. He's not, he's not trying to address the aging process. He's not trying to address what happens in, in, to the health of people as they get old. He is just establishing a general principle um, about physical marriage, and we will see that, I think, as we go through the text. Secondly, he is talking about <clears throat> a very intimate private matter very delicately. In these seven verses, there are four distinct euphemisms that are used to describe this physical relationship. In verse number one, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And the context demands that that is more than a handshake or a casual hug. They had asked a question about physical contact, and Paul answers it, and Paul's answer is expressed in verse number one. It is good not to do it. And he reaffirms that assessment in verse number seven. It would be my preference if everybody lived as I do. So if you just asked Paul, in general, about human beings and human intimate relationships, Paul would say, my preference would be that there be none. Now, he's not arguing that men live on one side of the world and women live on the other side. He's just arguing for basically non, a non-physical world. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we get into it because one of the things that colors this passage for a reason is that Paul renders his, on, on the one hand, Paul quotes the Lord, and on another hand, Paul gives fully inspired instruction, and on yet another hand, if there's such a thing, Paul gives his opinion. And we need to make sure that we're careful to note the distinctions in any event, right? So this would be his preference, but it isn't for everybody, and so he walks through all the scenarios and talks about all the scenarios that might happen. To go back to the euphemisms, touch in verse number one is the first euphemism. Verse number two, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. The word have is a euphemism. And if you're really not sure about that, let me just read to you 1 Corinthians 5. In chapter one, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And when we read 1 Corinthians 5, 1, we all know what he's talking about. And he's talking about the same thing in verse number 2. In verse number 5, you have another euphemism, defraud. The word actually means to, to take away. It is, a, it is a word used to describe at times criminal activity. We will return to that word later. And then in verse number 5, we have the fourth euphemism, which is found towards the end of the verse, come together again. Come together again. So Paul is talking about a physical relationship in principle form. He is talking about it delicately. Um, And I would just point out in, in the Old Testament that when God is 
harshly criticizing the Israelites for their infidelity to him, that he uses no such delicateness in his language. He is pointed to the place of almost being crude in the way he describes their behavior. And finally, there is a sense, and boy, I just have struggled and struggled to struggled with the right word and have yet to get it, but there is a sense in which Paul talks about this with kind of an air of detachment or disinterest. And I don't mean that he himself is necessarily physically disinterested, although I think that he is. But my point is, is that Paul is talking about the most intimate of physical activities almost as if he were describing something in a law book or in a textbook. And again, I think there is a very specific reason for that and that Paul is endeavoring to help believers understand the way their physical lives and their spiritual lives interact or at some level in this case do not necessarily impact each other. So what we have in these seven verses is a spiritual assessment of a physical activity. It is a spiritual explanation behind it. We all understand the physical attraction. Paul is not talking about that. He's not denying that. But he, he wants us to understand the spiritual dimension. In other words, in any marriage, a man has something to say about it, and a woman has something to say about it, and Paul wants us to understand that God has something to say about it. And so that's <clears throat> what he gets at. <clears throat> and then I would just point this out again, further before we get to the text, that I think it would be helpful to us to understand that throughout the history of God's people, we have struggled to reconcile our physical beings with our spiritual existence. And there are, at one extreme, some people, and sometimes in history and some teachings, in which anything that is viewed as physically pleasurable is sinful, whether it be marriage, whether it be food, And so this is one of the reasons, folks, that when you go back into the very early Middle Ages, you find such a strong monastic movement and people who lived in isolation will will go out to a cave and will only eat mush and we will have no fun and we will never smile, we will not talk, we will deny ourselves all pleasures because those things are an impediment to true godliness. And that's one extreme. And... There are people always, and there is always some pull upon us. There is always some dimension, or almost always some dimension, that when we do something that we find physically enjoying, enjoyable, we find, we'll feel bad about it spiritually. As if, as if somehow we have done an injury to our spiritual lives by having some kind of pleasure. And so there's one extreme. And of course, the other extreme are those who teach that nothing that we do in the body has any bearing on our spirituality. And we find that, I think, probably the most prevalent attitude in Corinth. Um, There are some who argue that the book of Colossians 
is one in which Paul is criticizing the extreme asceticism that some would embrace, don't have anything to do with the world. But when we quoted last week the slogan, meat for the belly and the belly for meat, Paul is reflecting an attitude of, it doesn't matter what my body, how can, how can my body have any bearing on my spirituality? They are completely separated, and they are completely and totally disconnected. And so we have occasionally passages, 1 Timothy 4, I won't go back and read because I think we'll probably have enough time this evening, but 1 Timothy 4, Paul talks about those who at the end would, would deny people certain things, and they would do this as a reflection of their religious devotion. And so, and right, in 1 Timothy 6.17, a charge to those who are rich in this world, that we remember God gave us all things richly to enjoy. So it really is a challenge, folks. It really is a challenge for us to balance this. We live physically in the world. We are spiritual people. We are related to God. We are related to other people. We have a world that can be pleasurable and we can have a world that can be sinfully pleasurable and getting it all right is part of learning to be a mature Christian. So with that as kind of my introduction and explanation, let's turn to the text, right? Paul responds to their question with the general principles, chapter 7, verse number 1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Not that there shouldn't be men and women, but it would just be best if there was not a physical dimension to the relationship. And that would be, as Paul expresses himself repeatedly in the passage, that would be Paul's preference. That would be Paul's preference. In verses 2 and 3, then, Paul goes on to expand upon the general principle because that's not the last word. Right? Here's a word. Here is, here is something to bring to the equation that really matters. It would be good if men didn't touch women. But not everybody can do that. And God knows not everybody can do that. And so there is an elaboration, and that is verses 2 and 3. Nevertheless, To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence and likewise also the wife unto the husband. So now we have not an opinion, but inspired instruction. Not that that verse 1 isn't inspired. That God has allowed, on this, in this chapter in particular, Paul to record his views and then also to record God's commands and then to record God's views. Verses 2 and 3, folks, and here's why I'm calling it God's explanation about the physical relationship between a husband and a wife is because verses 2 and 3 contain two imperatives. These are two commands from the Lord to married couples. The first imperative is is found in verse number 2, and it is the word have. 
It is an imperative. God insists upon this. And the command, folks, in verse number 2, is not a command to marry. It isn't, so everybody must be married. It is, all who are married must have a relationship. And that is a command, right? So at this point in time, God has something to say to married couples, and that's what it is. So God insists upon married couples being physical. A platonic marriage is not God's will for people, in principle. In principle. That's not what he wants. There is a command. There is another imperative. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. There is another imperative. This is a word that describes duty. And this is one of the reasons that I said, folks, Paul talks about this almost coldly or legally. That this is an obligation, that God obligates a husband and a wife. There's no obligation to be married. And if you can live without being married and use that singleness to serve the Lord, Paul would commend that heartily. But if you're going to get married, there has to be a physical dimension to it. God insists upon it, and God calls it a duty. A duty. It's an obligation. Let me give to you, I'll give you the references and the way they're found in our King James Bible. Just a few of the ways the word render is translated elsewhere in our Bible. In Matthew 5.26, it is translated with the word paid. Paid. P-A-I-D. In Matthew 5.33, it is translated with the word perform. In Matthew 6.4 and 6.18, it is translated with the word reward. And in Matthew 22.21, it is translated in part of this expression, render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. So let the husband render unto the wife due that which is owed. Matthew 18.28, it is translated both owed and owest, that which is your, that which is your debt. In Matthew 23, 18, it is translated with the word guilty. And in Luke eleven four, it is translated with the word indebted. So to those who are married, God commands a physical relationship because it is your obligation. Now, I can just not envision a scenario, folks in which dealing with a physical relationship as a legal transaction 
is something that the partners really want. Paul is not trying to take the romance out of marriage. This isn't a romantic passage. If you want to read a romantic passage, read the Song of Solomon. This isn't about romance. This is about how physical people who have a spiritual nature should understand how God views physical people who are spiritual people. He levies upon marriage partners an obligation for a physical relationship. And again, that's the principle. That is the principle. Then in verses 2 through 5, or verses 4 through 5, Paul expands upon that. Paul adds to that. Right? You have, right? I mean, here we are, we're the Corinthians, and we've asked Paul about this, and... Right? And, and in light of 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, we've asked Paul about this, and there's a sense in which we've struggled with this as a church. We've dealt with it as a church. We had, we had a, a fornicating man in the assembly. And we've had instruction about purity in 1 Corinthians 6. It's good not to touch. But if you're married you must. If you're married, you must. Why does God insist upon that? Why can't you just have a marriage and serve the Lord as a man and a woman? And of course, part of the answer, folks, that we would all know is that it is God's will and it has been God's will from the Garden of Eden that there are children in the world. But you'll notice that Paul never talks about children in the passage. Paul talks about fornication. Why is this a duty? Nevertheless, to avoid fornication. If you can live as Paul, perfect. But physical desires are part of the created being. And in a sinful world, they are corrupted. And Satan is always looking to play upon that corruption. And so the safeguard is not only to be married, but to have your spouse. Have your spouse. Verse number four, the wife hath not power, the idea is authority of her own body, but the husband. And if you can imagine, folks, if you just think through that, there's lots of recoiling at what Paul means and what he doesn't say. Does he mean there's a qualified? Does he qualify that in some way? But I think that he's confining it to this, to this subject matter. Right, that there is a duty and the duty goes beyond simply the appetites and the desires of one party. 
And one of the things that is really radical about the passage is the way that it deals with males and females equally. As verse number four, the wife hath not power of her own body but the husband. Likewise, likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body but the wife. So there is an obligation to each partner in the marriage given by God in which God himself grants authority to the other party So the first consideration, right, here's the principle. In general, it's good not to touch each other. But if you're married, you cannot take that route. There has to be a physical dimension to the relationship. God insists. And one of the reasons for this is the safeguarding of your own purity. And another reason for this is the safeguarding of your spiritual maturity. Verse number five. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. really wrestled with how to ask this question pointedly and yet very delicately. In light of verse number five, here's the question that I think we should entertain. Does having an active physical relationship make you a bad Christian? And there really are people who have made that argument. Or more specifically, they've made the argument that the purpose is children, and so unless there is the expectation that there will be a child, there shall be no activity. This is something that Paul is really touching upon. And in verse number five, we have another one of those dealing with a very sensitive, intimate, personal matter in a very calculated, legal dimension. The word defraud is a legal word. It means to steal or to rob or to cheat. It is a word that is used to describe the taking of something that belongs to someone else. So let me just let's just walk through what Paul is telling us in verse number 5 and then let's try and make some under get some understanding out of it. Okay? Do not defraud. Do not take from someone. In this case, do not hold yourself back 
except with consent, unless there's an agreement to this, for a time, so that you may give yourselves to prayer and fasting, so that Satan doesn't tempt you and the, and the word for has the idea of through, right? Because Paul's overarching concern has been your purity. Lest Satan tempt you for your incontinency. So what is the exception? <clears throat> Right? Because we, we begin the passage this way. Here is a command. God commands that there be a physical relationship in a marriage because it is your duty. It is part of the obligation of being married. And it has a purpose of protecting the purity of the marriage partners. Well, are there any exceptions to that? Yes, there are. The exceptions are prayer and fasting. Times of prayer and fasting. And one of the reasons that I posed the question the way that I did, folks, does, does having an active physical life serve as an impediment to your spirituality is because Paul has raised the subject matter of prayer and fasting and physical relationships. Do you think that people who pray and fast get their prayers answered more quickly? More fully? What I'm asking folks is, is prayer and fasting some kind of a technique, a magical technique? The gateway to getting your prayers answered. Don't eat. Don't eat. Folks, the reality is, is that the vast majority of instances of prayer and fasting in the Bible are not when they are mandated, but when they are consequences. You know why people fasted? Because they were so preoccupied with something that they were busy praying and talking to the Lord and, and, they, and they weren't taking the time to eat. Not because somebody said to them, you can't eat today. The same thing with prayer meetings. Right? There are no shortage of well-intentioned people who are always trying to organize prayer meetings. But in the history of the, of the world, prayer meetings never are organized. The prayer meetings that we read about in the history books always just kind of happened. You can't organize them into existence. Because how much we pray and the intensity for which we, with which we pray all have to do, folks, with the very intimate nature of what's going on. Just go back to the Garden of Eden with Jesus. He was exasperated. Can't you pray with me for an hour? And the reality is that he had a lot more at stake than those disciples did. So 
So what Paul is saying in verse number 5 is that there may be times when because of intense spiritual activity or intense burden, you come to an agreement that this is what you'll do. But the norm is not a celibate marriage. That's not the norm. In other words, folks, abstinence does not lead to godliness. But it may very well lead to ungodliness. 1 Corinthians 7, 5. That Satan tempts you not for your incontinency. So it is not unspiritual to follow the advice of Solomon to rejoice with the wife of your youth. To be always ravished with her love. That's not characteristic of bad Christianity or worldliness in the home. It is not one against the other, not to the Lord. If you're married, I insist. And if you agree for spiritual purposes to direct your energies elsewhere, do it temporarily. And then in verses 6 and 7, Paul makes his concession. And and that's what he really means there in verse number 6. But I speak this by permission. I'm making a concession and not of commandment. In other words, right? We ask this question, what permission is Paul giving? What is the permission that he's giving in verse number 6? I'm giving you permission to do what? And the word actually means an indulgence. What is he he intelligent? Look, okay, he's already commanded that there be a physical relationship. Verse number five is the indulgence. Verse number five is the indulgence. He's not commanding it He's granting it. So he's not not giving you permission to have a physical relationship. He's already commanded you to have one because God said if you're married, you need to have one. But he's granting a bit of an exemption there that in times of intense spiritual interest or, or burden, or heartache, or grief that you may give yourself to prayer and fasting. That's the concession. And again, in verse number 7, now Paul, God allows Paul to render his opinion, his assessment. For I would that all men were even as I myself. Now, I'm just going to stop here. If you, if you get the commentaries and go to the internet and look at the literature, there is an ongoing debate that will never be solved on this side as to whether or not Paul was married or had been married or had never been married. 
Paul just wishes. He's just expressing his wish. Right? The way, a pa- the way a youth pastor might stand up at a teen rally and wish that everybody was going into ministry. He wishes everybody was like him. But look carefully at verse number 7, folks. For I would that all men were even as myself, but. But. But not everybody has that gift. And that's how he views himself. But every man hath his proper gift of God. One after this manner and another after that. So Paul didn't view himself, folks. Do we understand this? Paul did not view himself as some kind of androgynous being. Paul was a man who had been gifted with singleness and celibacy because of the ministry that God had for him. And that's one of the reasons, if you were to ask me, I would argue that Paul had never been married. But the fight rages. I just want to close with this, folks. Just, just this observation, but not nothing to do with marriage, right? I mean, there, there, there it is. There's what Paul says, what God says through Paul to married couples that includes God's inspired instruction, imperatives, and an inspired record of Paul's opinion. In part, folks, because in the New Testament, as new, not in the New Testament in the book, but as a new covenant people, having an indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have the capacity to reason and think and logic and discuss through things in a way that was denied to Old Testament saints. Their lives were much more black and white. Everybody is going to do this. Nobody is going to do this. Everybody is going to follow this path. Now, that wasn't, I mean, there were single people and married people, but the Old Testament provided much less latitude for people to bring together four or five factors and make a decision. And New Covenant people are frequently called upon to make decisions in the light of multiple variables. And so, right, Paul speaks to us this way. This would be the best way. It would be, he's going to say this again and again. It would be the best way to live as single. There are advantages to being single. But it's a gift and not everybody has the gift. And so, all right, I'm going to stop there. That's Paul's, God's instruction to us through.